0: This podcast is brought to you by SMA, provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30 plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility scale projects completed worldwide, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, visit www.sma-america.com. For the week of September 9th, 2014, this is The Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. In this episode, we are going to talk about the latest data analytics trends for energy efficiency, America's first commercial cellulosic ethanol plant, and Tesla's Gigafactory for batteries. I am Green Tech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C., here to uh, walk you through some of these topics and also recording quickly here before jumping on a plane to the Bay Area for our SoftGrid conference that's going down this week. Catherine Hamilton is also here in Washington. She is a partner at the policy firm 38 North Solutions and a uh, frequent conference goer herself, although not to SoftGrid this week. What's going on this week, Catherine?
1: Um, well, we, we're having to get rid of all the plants in our office because we have a net problem. Um, so I'm really sad that we're going to get rid of, I don't know, probably a dozen plants. Uh, I think that there were two things. One was a, a net went up the nose of one of my clients in a meeting last week. And then another one, uh, stowed away in my purse and started buzzing around somebody in a Senate office. And, uh, so we're going to
0: have to get rid of them. So Congress comes back to town. And then gnats infest your office and kill your plants. So coincidence? <laughs> I think not. Yeah, that's right. Our other co-host Jigger Shaw, a partner with Clean Feet Investors, is with us in New York. And uh, this week, I think it beats his all-time record for most consecutive podcasts recorded from his home base in New York and not from the road. Jigger, is your wife going crazy having you around so many weeks in a row? <laughs> Yes, of course.
2: <laughs> but, you know, I think it'll be okay.
0: Well, I was going to say helping us cover an even greater portion of the East Coast um, from the Boston area, but I just found out that he's actually in San Francisco is our guest, uh, Swap Neil Shaw, the CEO and co founder of First Fuel, a steadily growing startup that remotely analyzes the energy profile of commercial buildings. And Swap is here to talk to us about uh, data analytics in the energy efficiency space and all the uh, interesting partnerships it has with utilities and the the difficulties in selling these services to utilities. So, Swap, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Stephen, and uh, great to be on the show with Catherine and Jugar.
0: Yeah, so you guys are in Boston there, and it wasn't until I started covering efficiency that I realized how many companies in the field were located in that area. Uh, the two companies closest to what you're doing, Retro Efficiency and WeGoWise, Wise, um, they're also there. Is this a fairly tight knit community in the Boston area? Or are you guys all duking it out to be top dog in intelligent efficiency?
3: Uh, no, we're. I mean, we all know each other. We've all bumped into each other in the journey of uh, of, of starting and growing the companies. Um, you know, it's not a huge area. So we absolutely do sit on similar panels, show up at similar shows. And that's probably true across the country, not just in the Boston area. You know, you uh, you tend to get to know all the players. Um, So in that sense, it is a relatively small community. Uh, As as you probably know, Stephen, from, uh, you know, the shows and the uh, conferences that you run.
0: So that term intelligent efficiency that I used is something that is a big lens for our efficiency reporting at Green Tech Media. And very simply, we define it as the use of IT to make efficiency trackable and manageable in real time, just like any other energy resource. And First Fuel is one of the companies at the forefront of this trend. It started out as a virtual auditor using remote analysis tools to create inverse models of large buildings without ever stepping foot inside. And it now has 18 utility customers using its tool. To identify savings and has raised uh, 21 million dollars in venture capital. And today, which we're going to talk about, it announced a rare partnership with O Power that will give it access to nearly a hundred more utility customers. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Swap will kind of start out with how you guys operate. Um, give give our listeners a sense of how your analytics, your software works. You know, I think people take for granted the fact that we can track pretty much everything now and a lot of people outside the the buildings industry don't realize what a black hole commercial buildings have been until recently so uh, what has changed from a modeling or data acquisition standpoint to give you the tools to actually make buildings more transparent
3: yeah no absolutely i think what's happened in the last uh you know decade or so is that uh there's obviously been greater awareness of the overall uh need to manage energy more efficiently uh, both as a combination of prices going up but also environmental concerns and uh, especially in commercial buildings which represent the largest growing portion of the uh, energy consuming segment so roughly the uh, trillion dollars spend on energy in this country is broken up between uh, about 20 percent residential roughly 20 percent commercial Uh, and then 30% uh, transportation and 30% industrial. Uh, So the 20% that represents the commercial sector is one of the fastest growing uh, in terms of energy use uh, compared to all the other sectors. So it has been a specific area of focus in terms of driving much more uh, optimization and efficiency. But in the last decade, uh, most utilities uh, have deployed either AMR or smart meters or some combination of um, time of use meters that collect data from uh, medium and large commercial buildings at a fairly frequent clips so, at you know typically fifteen minute intervals or half an hour intervals. So typically in a you know what most homeowners and what probably most of the listeners are used to in an energy bill is a monthly bill, so that's about twelve data points a year. A High-frequency meter or an AMR meter, interval meter, provides you, uh, if it's hourly, almost you know 8,760 data points, and if it's 15 minutes, you know north of 36,000 data points. So that provides a very high uh, resolution into the energy patterns and the energy consumption patterns uh, into a building, which is really the foundation of what we leverage by combining that with other data sources such as weather and uh, building uh, phys- physical aspects to really do a very deep and a comprehensive analysis of the building's consumption uh, and come up with a you know a fairly um, knowledgeable set of answers about what should be done to improve the energy um, performance
2: of that particular building. So let me, I mean, let me just try to boil this down for our listeners a little bit. I mean, you know, there's a lot of these big rebate companies like NICERTA has, you know, uh, eight hundred million dollars a year or so that comes in every year, and they spend lots, lots of that money on energy efficiency rebate programs, incentive programs, etc. So if they just gave you a hundred million bucks, how fast could you save hundred million dollars in ratepayer um, bills? Well, let me
3: let me give you some specific examples, right? Um, if you look at, um, uh, you know, when we look, we've, we've done about in, analyzed about two point two billion square feet in in, a, in the last just about two years, um, you know, and that represents uh, almost sixty thousand uh, buildings. So that's a that's a very large number of, uh, of both floor space and buildings that we've looked at, um, and that can only be achieved through analytics. Uh, so if you if you look at the traditional process of sending a hu- engaging with the customer, convincing them to get a human into the building, to walk through the building, you know, 60, 90 days later, get a report that defines what could be done in the building. That entire process could take six months or up to a year. And uh, it's funny that you bring up NYSERDA because um, one of the reports that NYSERDA recently came up with um, about, about a year ago, was the conversion that uh, is achieved as a result of presenting a customer with audits. And they showed that there's a 20 to 25% conversion when somebody's presented with a paper audit. But if there's ongoing follow up and continuous follow up, uh, over the course of three years, you get up to a 66% you know, percent conversion. So customers take time to to take. Uh, you know, to implement measures, and what we found is that the the and including the report found was that the 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 quickest measures that are implemented are the ones that are the lowest cost by definition, and those tend to be the operational measures. And one of the things that analytics can do uh, is they are very, very good uh, and and almost consistently better than on-site audits at identifying operational measures, things like people who leave their lights on all weekend. You know, don't turn off the cooling at night, starting their buildings, you know, way too early before occupancy begins. All of those things we found to be more than 50 percent of the total savings potential in a building. So if if you were to give me a hundred million dollars tomorrow, you know, we we can scan the entire state of New York and all of the commercial buildings and identify about on the average about 50, half the savings in those buildings, which are low cost, no cost, you know, within a matter of months. And then get them, you know, to the road of road for implementation. Uh, I don't know what the total consumption of New York State is, so I can't answer the question on how they translate specifically into uh, into savings and the value back. But I would imagine that they would recover those hundred million dollars, you know, within two years pretty quickly through uh, just implementing a broad scale of operational measures across a broad portfolio.
1: Swap. What I find really interesting here is that you use data to really get at humans and human behavior, which I think all along has been the nut, uh, that we've had to try to crack in commercial buildings because, you know, if you just have somebody operating a chiller incorrectly, um, or, you know, turning on something just to make one tenant happy that didn't really need it, um, and it'll blow your whole savings. And so the fact that you can track that data to show where the human element intersects, I find pretty fascinating.
3: Yeah, no, it's true. And, you know, I think, um, If you take a step back, right, I mean, uh, a lot of the discussion around commercial buildings tends to broadly focus on, you know, office buildings and multi-tenant buildings. The reality, though, is that owner-occupied buildings make up more than two-thirds of the commercial property market and, you know, the the, the non-residential building market in the U.S. I mean, think about all of the federal buildings, the state buildings, the municipal buildings, the universities, the corporate campuses owner-occupied buildings are, you know, a very large part, uh, you know, compared to the uh, multi-tenant buildings. And these people have a very long-term view about, you know, on on energy conservation um, and and implementing uh, energy conservation, whereas typically the multi-tenant buildings have a shorter-term view. Uh, Either they're owned by REITs and are going to be flipped within five years. And so those are perfect targets for also these operational measures because they can save without the capital expenditure um, that has much longer paybacks.
0: All right, so I want to talk a little bit about this uh, partnership that you're engaging in with Opower, and this is not why we brought you on the podcast, but it just seemed to time perfectly. So today, you and Opower announced that you were... um, co-branding your platforms to create a three-tiered system for utility customers that gives them um, data analytics for residential small commercial and large commercial and uses your tool for large commercial and very good for the both of you actually really exciting news for our listeners i think because opower doesn't really engage in many partnerships like this so the fact that they did this with first fuel is significant um, of course, for you, it gives you access to a lot of utility customers that o power already has, and for o power, it's good because they've been wanting to expand into large commercial and haven't been able to do it themselves so what's going on here like wh- why is this so significant in your opinion
3: um you know that's it, it's two things one is it's primarily what we call you know, I, I believe it's market driven um, when you look at it from a utilities perspective you know for them there's a they have a customer base that spans all of those segments, you know uh, residential, uh, small commercial, and then medium and large commercial and industrial. More and more, the utilities are instead of having to pick you know individual technologies and individual tools. Um, they are stepping back and saying, "You know what? I want to offer a consistent look and feel to all of my different customer segments." however, there isn't one tool that serves all of those segments or one engagement uh, paradigm that serves all those segments. Each of those segments has very unique needs and therefore have to be uh, targeted with very specific and unique content that's relevant to that segment, right? What a residential customer needs uh, on the behavioral savings side, which Opower has built a phenomenal business on, is very different than what a large commercial customer needs that has a campus of, you know, 500 buildings, or a portfolio of a thousand buildings spread across the country, um, and and so what we do is we've been first field has been obviously very good, very good, and very targeted and very specific, at targeting the non-residential sector, the CNI sector, and we understand the needs of that market. But what what this partnership is, um, you know, is is all about is is working together to provide a common uh, look and feel and a common. Uh, end-user brand experience from a utilities perspective to their customers while yet providing highly specific content to every segment of the market?
2: So, I mean, Opower has a history of having very, very very good relationships with the utility companies, um, which I think is really impressive. Separately, there seems to be a lot of this big sky conversation happening around big data and what what really the impact of big data can be on Commercial real estate. I guess I'm just trying to understand, you know, from in terms of the art of the possible, uh, some of the numbers being thrown out is 20% savings by 2020 using this sort of big data approach. Is that something that you think is actually within reach?
3: Um, Absolutely. We're in fact in, you know, we're doing that today for some of our largest customers. So in addition to utilities, we also work with uh, very large property owners, Jigar. Um, one of them is the GSA, which is the federal government. Um, we work with them across their largest uh, buildings across the country, and they have a very aggressive 30% goal by 2020, which we're helping them achieve, and they're well on track to achieving that. Um, so the, the answer is absolutely. And um, let me let me kind of, you know, cast that. So absolutely on the residential side, again, one of the differences between residential and the commercial market, you know, big data is a big deal because you've got very uh, – a very large number of very uh, individually small consumers, right? So home consumes uh, a, a little, little energy compared to a commercial building, but there's millions and millions and millions of homes. The flip side is on the commercial side, you have fewer numbers of consumers, but they're very large consumers. So the big data trend on the residential side, what, you know, which, which is really the strength of all power, the way it translates on the commercial side is for us it's deep data, it's helping uh, these uh, commercial property owners and commercial uh, buildings understand very deeply on a building by building basis through unique analysis of every building, um, you know, what specific things they can do. Because a simple action can produce enough savings equivalent to, you know, hundreds of homes. You know, no two buildings that are alike, even if they're physically the same and physically the same vintage, um, how they're used and who they're occupied by and and then what the usage is based on the type of tenants or the type of uh, a business that that runs inside them really drives their consumption so you know you cannot really compare you know one restaurant versus you know a subway versus a Capitol grill you know you can't compare a convention center uh, uh you know versus another convention center because they're completely different their profiles are completely different so it's um it's 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 what we call deep data it's taking uh, a little data on each individual building, but going incredibly deep in unraveling uh, the patterns of usage and understanding those uh, those usages. And that's what I think is, you know, is, is I believe and we believe is what's going to drive um, large-scale efficiency on the commercial sector is by giving every one of these buildings and every one of these customers a very deep understanding of their consumption so that they can start taking action quickly.
0: I've got kind of a two-part question here. And the first is how hard is it to sell analytics like this into the utility space? Obviously, this partnership with Opower is huge because um, it's going to give you access to a lot of uh, utilities that they're already working with. But you could have the best tool in the world, and the sales cycle would still be absurdly slow uh, for a startup that's ready to move quickly. Um, And then, secondly, what advice would you give to all the startups like you operating in this space? You know, There are like 300... Different software startups in the um, building energy management space and smart meter analytics, and you know the number of folks that um, Paul Baer, who now works for you, uh, called the enterprise smart grid. So, like, how difficult is it? And then, how do startups navigate that uh, really difficult sales cycle?
3: Sure, I'm not going to reveal all our secrets, Stephen. But that was was a good question. (laughs) But you know, at a macro level. you know, first of all, there's when we talk about utility, there's two flavors of utilities, right, uh, at a macro level. There's regulated utilities, um, and then there's uh, deregulated utilities. Uh, and deregulated utilities are no different than your Fortune 500 company, right? I mean, they are uh, com- they're in competitive markets and they uh and they they are you know don't have to specifically adhere to specific regulations either on energy efficiency or on procurement or any of those you know things that would impact the sales cycle and then there's a third category of utility kind of under the regulated segment which is the municipal utilities and each of them move at very different paces right so the regulated utilities obviously because they're regulated have the greatest uh you know checks and balances that they have to go through everything has to be an RFP above a certain amount, and as a result, that is a long sales cycle. However, the benefit over there is that once you, uh, you know, they don't compete with each other. At least, not in you know, not in North America. They all collaborate very closely. So that's co- you know, one of the ways uh, companies like GoPower has scaled quickly is by is by demonstrating real value with a handful of uh, utilities. Of the power of analytics on the residential side. And the utilities do collaborate. They work together. The, 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 the uh, regulators talk to each other regularly um, and, and work together in a very non-competitive environment. So they tend to learn and move uh, based on what others are doing, which is a huge benefit if you're, you know, in a leadership position and you're establishing the value and the true value of what the analytics can bring because that can then accelerate fairly quickly, and each of these utilities represents a very large opportunity once you, you, know, you engage with them. Uh, the, on the retail side, you know, the sales cycles aren't that long right? because they, there's no procurement process. They don't have to RFP things. They can move relatively quickly, um, and it's a, it's a more traditional enterprise sales, uh, which is you know, much, much shorter than a regulated sale. So if you, you you kind of treat it as an overall portfolio and also part of our portfolio is a government cell because we work with governments, we work with the Department of Defense, we work with the gsa we work with washington d c and that and, and they also have um, certain um, regulations they have to follow in terms of procurement, but also can you know can move relatively faster and when I say relative it 's relative to the regulated utilities so you you approach it as a portfolio and then you manage um, your sales cycle as a portfolio to you know, to uh, move it forward without, you know, waiting forever on, on just one segment of the market to take action.
0: Swap Neil Shaw is the CEO and co-founder of First Fuel, based in Lexington, Massachusetts, and he joined us from San Francisco. Swap, thanks for joining us. A good conversation. Um, and we will see you at SoftGrid, correct?
3: Um, yeah, Badri, our CTO, will be there. And uh, I think he's sitting on a, uh, on a panel that you're with, and uh, I'm hoping to, uh, you know, participate uh, in the audience as well.
0: All right, great. We'll see you there. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Stephen.
0: All right, before we go into the second part, let's get a word in here about our sponsor, SMA. A properly maintained solar plant can increase yield up to 30%. So maximize production and accelerate your investment payback with SMA's operations and maintenance service, including 24-7 remote monitoring for commercial and utility-scale PV plants. O&M offerings from SMA are scalable to fit your business model and are backed by the industry's number one service team. Uncover the full potential of your PV system with SMA service. You can find out more about SMA service by going to SMA-America.com. Seven years after it was initially proposed, America's first commercial-scale cellulosic biofuels refinery is finally open for business. Project Liberty is actually the largest cellulosic plant in the world, capable of producing 25 million gallons of fuel per year from corn stover. Those are the leaves, stalks, and cobs remaining after the corn itself has been processed. The Department of Energy gave Poet, the company that co-developed the plant, $100 million in grants and R&D support to get it up and running. Naturally, both DOE and Poet are saying this project is a big step for the advanced biofuels industry, but uncertainties remain. It will take a couple of years of monitoring to know whether the plant is worth recreating. And in Washington, the fight over biofuels mandates is making the investment climate for advanced biofuels very murky. So what's the significance here? Um, Catherine, you've been talking to some industry folks about this over the last week. What, What are they saying to you?
1: Yeah. And I've also been working in uh, the biomass space for a long time. I used to run the American Bioenergy Association with another colleague. And we were at that point trying to get a cellulosic plant. We had a prototype plant in Jennings, Louisiana that BP ended up buying, but it hasn't really produced anything. It's still there, but it's not doing anything. So this is a big deal because it's not that it's the first one to open that's producing ethanol because Kior and Enios both opened up plants. But this is the first one that a poet, which as a corn ethanol producer, then was able to use other parts of corn rather than the food value corn to produce um, cellulosic ethanol, which is really, really important. And the great thing is it's the first of four, four plants that are going to be coming on lo- online very quickly in succession that together will produce about 80 million gallons a year of fuel. So the the industry is excited about this. Um, the issue is that even though these plants are all coming online, they've, they've been under development for a long time. The regulatory uncertainty is just killing them.
0: Absolutely. And and so we're still waiting on the EPA's guidance for renewable fuels targets for next year. Give us a sense for how that uncertainty is playing out in Washington right now.
1: Yeah, so there's sort of two main things that um, Mike McAdams, the president of the Advanced Biofuels Association, was talking to me about. One is that, you know, there has been sort of this open warfare, um, and this isn't, this is not how he characterizes it, but this is how I've seen it over the years between, you know, not just the petroleum refinery guys, but also the corn ethanol guys versus the folks who are really trying to take cellulose, all the waste products that aren't high value feedstock and turn those into real fuel. And the only way to do that really is to reform the renewable fuel standard legislatively um, so that it has real teeth, so that in statute you make people purchase gallons of cellulosic ethanol if it is produced. The issue with that is that you have to open up the Clean Air Act to do that, and that causes all kinds of other problems that people don't like. But one of the things that Mike really brought up to me was that there are what are called pathways process pathways where you have a certain te- certain technologies feedstocks and fuels that you produce that are approved by EPA and right now there are 22 pathways to produce ethanol and there are 38 Pending pathways. So there are 38 folks out there who have technologies, feedstocks, and fuel that are producing fuel, but the pathways haven't been approved by EPA. And that is causing all kinds of problems. So if EPA can start um, expediting that and come up with, you know, how do you approve these different pathways to produce whatever fuel you're producing, that will also open up the market significantly.
0: So we've got a few plants operating now. Um, one of them was shut down or scaled back recently. Now we have this 25 million gallon per year facility that will scale up. Jigger, from an investment perspective, right? We've got all these one off plants. And in Poet's case, they're going to monitor this plant. They're going to attempt to license the technology, but they don't really know if they're going to do a second plant because they want to see how it operates. Would you, as an investor, be putting money into these plants?
2: Hell no. these technologies have really had a hard time. I mean, even the poet, um, you know, area. I mean, I've been following the, the Novazyme work out of Denmark, which I think is probably the leading cellulosic ethanol enzyme group in the world. Um, and it's just, it's really hard to see whether the yields that poets actually claiming will actually come true. Um, there's been a lot of busts in the past. Um, and so, I mean, I, I just think we're early days. This is why the U.S. government should be putting $100 million um, into these kinds of plants, because I think it's it's important to to figure out whether this stuff is going to work or not. I think on the EPA side, it's a really good point. I mean, look, I mean, I, I think EPA is doing a fantastic job on carbon regulation. But this notion that EPA does a good job of figuring out how to allow – innovation in the transportation sector is completely untrue. I mean, EPA regularly thwarts people who are trying to put forward other engine types and it sounds like pathways in this case because they don't have the manpower to do it and you know, no one really wants to fund them properly to do it. And so they end up becoming a bottleneck for people who want to pursue innovation in this area. So I, I think solid ethanol has a lot of opportunity but I think right now it is not a great placing, given all the uncertainties.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been extremely frustrating, as Jigger has said, that um, you have to go through this really long, arduous process. If you have a different bug, a different organism to break down, um, you know, the cellulose into a sugar, it, you know, it may not be approved, um, even though the feedstock has been approved and even though the fuel has been approved. So there are just so many hurdles to get through. And um, and yet there is, as Jigger says, there is so much opportunity because we have so much waste out there that if we can break it down down into a usable fuel, it just, um, you know, it's the waste could be actually put to use. But there is also remember, an existing industry that has prevent, been preventing that from happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just think that we should come back at this at a broader context, you know, Yossi Hollander, and y'all, I don't know, have have funded a movie called pump the movie, pump the movie. That's coming out next week, I think, um, in theaters near you that talks about ethanol and ethane and methanol and how we should be using a lot more of that in higher quantities because we have millions of cars that are E85 capable with those little uh, logos of corn next to them that aren't actually using E85, even though it's a lot cheaper than gasoline and diesel. Um, I just think that we're in this weird funk. And then, you know, you've got the former – uh, you know, hedge fund manager uh, Nick Tiller, who from uh, SAC, who's now started a new uh, nonprofit called Sustainable America, and he's basically really trying to highlight the food versus fuel debate. You know, Nick was a former hedge fund manager that did a lot of analysis, and he's basically saying, Look, OPEC is losing a lot of its um, spare capacity, and people are turning to ethanol to try to make sure that we don't run out of oil globally. Um, But that being said, you know, we've got a real food versus fuel thing, which is why cellulosic makes a lot of sense, because we're not going after food, we're going after waste streams, as Catherine talks about. But I just think that, I just think when you think about the simplicity of how we're going about tackling the electric utility grid, that level of simplicity is not even close to being achieved Um, on alternative fuels. And I I do think that there needs to be some time spent on what's our goal, how much money can we afford to put forward? And my sense is that number is enormous, because we spend so much money on fuel. And you know, what's the pathways by which we're going to create the innovation necessary to get to the finish line?
1: Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I also feel like we need to we need to come up with some goals on, you know, is it better to produce a drop in fuel? Is it better to produce a chemical that can then substitute for a lot of petroleum products? You know, what are all the different things, products that you want to actually have come out of this?
0: Absolutely. The, any sense on how much the oil industry has spent against the renewable fuels mandate? Do you have any idea, Catherine? I haven't seen the numbers, but I feel like the ads out there have been more intense than when we were debating the waxman markey bill
1: yeah it's a big fight it's a big fight and it's weird because you know you've got the oil guys and then you have the corn guys who are all you know none of those people really want the cellulosic folks to succeed so um you know the oil guys against the corn guys but then everybody doesn't like cellulose so um it's it makes it really difficult for that industry
0: yeah i can't really see any factors coming into play that are going to turn this around individually All right. Well, let's um, move on and talk about a different sector of the transportation market, electric vehicles. It is official. As I mentioned last week, Tesla said it would build its $5 billion gigafactory for lithium-ion batteries in Nevada, in Reno. When the plant finally gets fully up and running in 2017, roughly, uh, that's what's proposed at least, Elon Musk says it could drop the cost of batteries by 30%. Not everyone is convinced that the Gigafactory as proposed is a great idea, however. Some analysts think the market for EVs and stationary storage won't be big enough to soak up the factory's production, leading to overcapacity and extremely tight margins for Panasonic and Tesla. New data from the auto research firm Edmunds shows the market growing only incrementally, with EV sales this year basically flat compared to last year. So are we looking at a situation similar to solar manufacturing when producers overbuilt capacity and destroyed their profits? Or will Tesla help boost a market in dire need of scale? Jigger, in the context of these flat EV numbers and uh, the production levels Tesla is projecting, what, what do you think about all
2: that? Well, I, you know, look, I think that there's going to be some growing pains in this whole thing. I do think that Tesla has done pretty well. I mean, Tesla Model X, as I understand it, has over 25 25- Hundred um, units that have been uh, pre um, pre sold, uh, and so so that's a big plus. I I, I think that the way they're going to make the Tesla Model X is they're actually going to split time within their existing module uh, their existing car manufacturing window, which means they're going to be able to produce less Model S's at the same time. So I don't think Tesla has. An excess of capacity. I think they actually have a shortage of capacity in terms of manufacturing capacity. I, I, one thing that I do think this that the most recent data that came out these last three months shows that compared to last year, we actually sold less electric uh, electrical vehicles than we did in the three months prior a year ago because we had a huge drop off in hybrid electric vehicle sales, um, which. I think is telling. I, I mean, I do think this notion that electric vehicles are going to succeed without a fundamental change in the business model is laughable. Um, I don't think that Tesla or, or the Nissan Leaf or anyone else is going to be successful at getting past this 1%, 2%, 3% hurdle rate of total, sa- total sales. And if we don't get 50% of all new cars being sold to be Um, these new, um, you know, low carbon vehicles, then we're sunk. And so, I mean, I do think we need a fundamental business model innovation, and not just more cars from different manufacturers with lower prices.
1: But remember, like Tesla Model S and Nissan Leaf are the only two models available nationally everywhere. There are 20 models available in California. So of course, they're going to have 40% of the EV market. And actually, you know, in August, Prius sold over 23,000 vehicles. So they're still in the top 10 of all the passenger vehicles sold. And then the numbers that I get from the Electric Drive Transportation Association show that actually the sales have gone up from 2013 through August and compared to 2014 through August, plug-in sales are up 32%. So it looks like the trajectory is still up. It's just that people are shifting from hybrids to full-on electric. And I think once we have more of those, and jigger, once we do get some policies in place, state policies especially, I think that's just going to increase.
0: Yeah. And what do you mean by business model innovation here? So I think Tesla is a good example of business model innovation in that they've set up direct to consumer um, sales offices, uh, Elon Musk has opened up his patents to try to con- encourage innovation throughout the sector. They've created an extremely desirable, well-functioning car that gets talked about and gets extraordinarily good reviews and then are then creating more accessible models as they go. I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way to make um, you know a multi-million dollar EV market, but there's a lot of innovation in what Tesla is trying to do here. Can you give me any more thoughts on What kind of innovation you're hearing people talk about? Do you have any specific examples of how you might see millions of these cars sold to Americans versus tens of thousands?
2: Yeah, so I think the point that that Catherine was just making, I think what that leads me to believe is that there's a set number of people who care about fuel economy, who care about climate change, etc.? and they're just shuffling the deck chairs. So some of them who bought the Prius back in 2004 are now upgrading to a plug-in Prius or they're upgrading to a Tesla, which is fine. But the broader marketplace, um, who's being socked with very high gasoline and diesel fuel bills, are not switching to more fuel-efficient cars. So one thing that we are doing is we're raising cafe standards, which is great. So that's going to overall make it better. But uh, some of the things that we can do is, for instance, people in the home healthcare space, right? A lot of them they visit four or five people per day to try to you know look at how well those patients are doing. They actually get compensated. Um, a certain salary, but they also get 52 cents a mile or so as a reimbursement. You can imagine that some company coming out there and saying, look, we're going to give you a free Nissan Leaf, and we're going to charge you 40 cents per mile, so you get to keep 12 or 15 cents a mile of your reimbursement to pad your salary, because electric vehicles are just much lower cost to operate on a cost per mile basis. Those people might switch if that's, if they were offered that because now it's just a purely financial decision, which is exactly what's happened in the solar business. The reason people are really going now is because we've entered the early mass market and we're entering the mid-mass market where people are purely driven by the cost savings. They're not driven anymore about you know, trying to save the planet, where I think on the electric vehicle side, you got folks who want to brag about the fact they have a Tesla versus a BMW, which is great, and I love what Tesla is doing. But we're not on track to getting the 50% of all cars actually being, you know, new cars being sold, being, um, you know, these low-carbon vehicles. I think that
0: is why a lot of analysts are skeptical about the size of this gigafactory. So at its peak, it'll create roughly a half million battery packs, lithium-ion battery packs. And Lux, the research based in Boston, predicted around 250,000 EVs sold by the end of the decade. So you've got a big gap there. What did, what to do with that excess? Um, obviously, stationary storage is huge for Tesla, and Elon Musk is affiliated with SolarCity, so they're going to try to use that for commercial residential applications. But I was talking to our storage analyst at GTM Research, and he's starting to track these numbers. We don't have any f- official projections yet, but we are coming out with a report fairly soon. And uh, you know, the U.S., Stationary storage market in both commercial and residential, you know, behind the meter is not going to be enough to soak up soak up this excess capacity. So they they'll probably want to sell into Germany or Spain or maybe the UK. China is going to be ridiculously hard because half of, product more than half of production capacity is based in China, and it's hard for non non Chinese companies to break in due to uh, local favorable laws. And then all of a sudden, and then you got samsung you got lg chem byd they're also going to ramp capacity they're not going to sit idle here while tesla scales up and so that could cut into margins as well as these companies race to the bottom in pricing so like I, I, we're not necessarily as bearish as lux which said that they see uh margins really stripped thin and a lot of excess capacity because we haven't done all our modeling yet but we are definitely very cautious about you know between 2017 and 2020 whether. There'll be enough to soak up all this production that Tesla's talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I
1: feel like with the storage mandates that are happening, especially the one in California, and then as the utility models start shifting, um, although folks like First Fuel may actually save their bacon, um, I feel like um, it's you know this driving down the cost of the batteries is going to really enable uh, enable us to deploy so many more. So I don't know. I I'm still pretty bullish on it.
2: Yeah, I don't – I mean I certainly don't think that the decision to build a gigafactory was a bad one. I think it's a good one and it's going to create some real efficiencies for Tesla and for the battery storage market. The one thing I am finding though is – I mean I'm looking a lot at battery storage these days. I don't actually think the cost of lithium-ion batteries is coming down as much as you know people think. And the Lux Research Report I think said that exactly. Mm-hmm. What you're finding is the innovation is really around giving these batteries more cycles. And so instead of actually only lasting – 2,000 cycles are now lasting 3,000 cycles, and then 3,000 cycles going to 5,000 cycles. And that's a big deal because then you can amortize the cost of those batteries over more economic value. Um, And I agree with Catherine completely. I mean the one thing that's interesting is that the SGIP rebate money – I was looking at the data from that the other day. And Tesla does have the lion's share of the SGIP rebates uh, for battery storage. So they have have applied for a lot of money from the state of California.
0: Well – there are certainly unforeseen opportunities in the utility market that I think will present themselves. Uh, the risks here are pretty high, and it's unclear at this point how much reward the company will reap, but someone has to do it. I don't think it's a bad idea at all. Capacity absolutely needs to expand, and uh, you know, if there's any company that has an innovative, integrated strategy to handle it, I think it is Tesla.
2: Well, the last thing for me is that I actually I am predicting that within the next 12 months, I am very confident that apple will buy tesla because i think that tesla desperately needs the manufacturing expertise and the supply chain expertise that that apple has and i don't think apple really is has any growth opportunities outside of you know within their core business so i think that would be a marriage made in heaven you heard it here first
0: folks and are you hearing that is that just your own speculation or are you hearing that from credible people Not that Um, you're not credible or anything. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm not.
2: I'm certainly not credible in this area. I have heard from three very credible stock analysts that believe it's going to happen, and I also have heard from others who have said that you know it's just it's one of those things where. Um, Apple just, it just doesn't see, nobody can see how Apple's growth really gets there. You can't just come out with another iPhone or another iPad, et cetera, um, and be successful. And the iWatch is interesting if it comes out, but, but you know, this is an area where Apple, I think, could play a really big role because um, electric vehicles, you know, I think that it really is about the design and making sure that it, it, it is a seamless customer experience, et cetera.
0: Well, maybe at the end of the show, instead of telling our listeners something they don't know, we should make the biggest predictions we can and see if they come true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Time to wrap up the show. Uh, Catherine, tell us something we don't know.
1: Yeah. So by the time we tape again, Congress will be out of session. So I just needed to let people know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks in Congress. First, they have to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government lights on um, because, um, you know, the current budget ends the end of September and they won't be back till after the election. So they have to pass a continuing resolution. The issue is, will it be clean? In other words, will there not be any amendments on it? Uh, One of the things that kind of also has to happen before the end of September is XM Bank Real authorization. So if they can sneak that on to what they would call a clean continuing resolution, well, maybe that will happen. Uh, Most of us think it will happen one way or the other. But, um, you know, still, we're not sure because sometimes there are people in the House who obstruct things that you think should pass from happening. No,
0: they don't.
1: (laughs) There also is a move on the House side to come up with kind of like what they call a greatest hits album of energy pieces, which um, which they call like, you know, the production infrastructure reliability and efficiency in energy. Now, you may think that has to do with clean energy, but it actually doesn't. It has to do with approving Keystone Pipeline, increasing LNG expert Ports and removing EPA's authority to do almost anything. So you're going to see that happen, too. That is a messaging bill that only the Republicans will vote for in the House and that they can then take back home as they try to get reelected to say, hey, look at all the great stuff we're doing.
2: All right. Thanks for the update. Jigger. So the Indian government, um, India itself has about 21,000 megawatts of of wind power uh, in the country. And GE made an announcement a little while ago that it was going to invest $200 million to set up a wind turbine manufacturing unit in India. I think what's new is the Indian government just announced that they were going to make whatever changes necessary on accelerated depreciation and other pieces to get the annual amount of wind power in India to go up from 2,000 megawatts a year to 10,000 megawatts a year uh, very quickly, um, which I think will be a big boon to the the wind energy uh, industry and hopefully to uh, U.S. manufacturers using the XM bank. So you can know, their grid handle all it? that? I think so. I mean, I, I, I believe it can. And I think it's just, it's one of those things where I think India is really getting it. And it's great to see the G20 broadly get it. I, I also think that India is going to make an announcement of a hundred thousand megawatts of solar by 2020 soon. And yeah. they're doing
1: a ton in storage too. There's a whole association there working on storage.
2: So I think it's, you know, it's good to see the G20 starting to compete with each other on, you know, who can be the most uh, clean energy friendly. Remember, yeah. though,
0: Jigger's number one rule, volumetric reductions and in incentives. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yes. Let's hope they much. do that. Exactly.
0: All right. I've just got a quick story uh, relating to our theme in the first part of the show. So we talked with Swap about building performance and how little people know about it. And uh, a startup similar to First Fuel. Is also, this Boston based company, WeGoWise, which focuses on multifamily buildings, is trying to address that by building a new rating system. LEED is something that everyone knows. It's a very popular rating system for green buildings, and it's been criticized because it rates construction techniques and materials very highly, but doesn't factor in energy performance as much. And we've seen examples of this in cities with building disclosure laws where new LEED buildings actually use more energy than much older buildings with tighter envelopes. And uh, I I guess to be fair to lead that, I mean, that building is probably a heck of a lot cleaner, healthier, and brighter than the older building. Uh, And also the U.S. Green Building Council is factoring in energy consumption more into its rating system after getting criticized. But WeGoWise is trying to create its own, um, this rating system for energy and water performance, starting with multifamily apartments. And it's, it's a small company. It doesn't have the same marketing power as, say, USGBC. But they've got a ton of data on how these buildings are performing, which gives them some credibility. I'm not really sure how a, quickly a rating system like this could get traction. I mean, it took USGBC a long time. Uh, but folks are paying a lot more attention to energy performance, not just design techniques. So uh, an interesting little anecdote about that. All right, here we are at the end of the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and thank you very much to our sponsor, SMA. You can always find out more about the stuff we're discussing at greentechmedia.com. While there, you can not only subscribe to our podcast, but our newsletter as well. And we're just pumping out stories daily for you in the solar grid modernization and efficiency sectors. On September 22nd, we will have our live show in New York City at 7 p.m. at the WNYC Auditorium. More details on that are at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. And this is our last podcast until that live show. Sorry to make you wait a little bit longer, but schedules worked out that way, and I'm heading on vacation after our soft grid conference. So we will catch you, some of you in New York, hopefully, and then the day after we'll have the podcast out there. Catherine, have a fabulous week.
1: Thanks. Look forward to seeing you guys in New York. I think I'll have to wear shoes and pants, huh?
0: I know. I'll dust off the jacket and get it done. <laughs> Jager, good to see you as well. Or looking forward to seeing you as
2: well. <laughs> Always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to inviting you guys up to my hood in New York. Are you going to mix us some cocktails? Yeah, I was thinking we should probably like try to figure out some sort of uh, happy hour or something, either before or after our, our
0: show. Yeah, we've got the cocktail reception planned, so... If uh, We'll be able to see people at the cocktail reception afterward, but maybe we can go get a few drinks beforehand and get loose before oh talking my. to ah. people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'll become confrontational.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't want me mixing your cocktails either. Mine are way too strong. <laughs> All right, I'm off to soft grid in a little vacation in Lake Tahoe. We'll catch you on September 22nd with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com.